you'd open your Bibles to uh, Isaiah chapter 52 this morning. Isaiah 52. God's focus has been on Abraham and Abraham's children uh, since... Oh, thank you. Junior church, ages 3 to 6. Ages 3 to 6 to junior church. All right, if you would like. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. All right. Well, uh, we are in uh, we are in uh, Isaiah fifty two, and um, ever since Genesis twelve, God's focus has been on Abraham and his children. Uh, he said in Genesis twelve to Abraham, "I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you." All the families of the earth shall be blessed. And there is a spiritual sense in which today even Gentiles can be in Abraham. We're part of that in you. All the families shall be blessed. We are a part of Abraham's spiritual heritage. But there also remains a literal people group who are physically the descendants of Abraham. And we would have to say, spiritually, this gains them nothing. If they do not repent of their sin and receive the foundation of their salvation, their Messiah, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, then they will perish in their sin for all of eternity. But as a people group, they are a marked people on this earth. So long as Israel is alive, God is able to revive and restore all Israel to being the true Israel at any moment. And they're might be some benefits to being Israeli today, but there are certainly some burdens. And uh, if there is any sense in which Israel is the people of God, we would expect dark spiritual forces to align themselves against Israel throughout history. Uh, We are studying Isaiah, and uh, we're studying his prophecies, and we're told that as a matter of God's punishment, God is going to hand them over to an enemy that wants to destroy them, exile them, Babylon. It hadn't happened yet. As Isaiah is writing, it had not yet happened. And they were going to be in exile for 70 years, long enough to get settled, long enough to have new lives, new homes, and to really feel a part of a new community. But once this 70 years is over, Israel needs to return, and Israel is going to need motivation to get up and return. That's what this word is about today. It lets Israel know that they are a part of God's unfolding plan that will not be fully realized in their lifetime, but into which their lives can be invested. God is calling on them to make that investment. God calls you and me to invest our lives in his unfolding plan. And just as you see hatred and enmity for Israel in our world today, you can be assured that there's going to be spiritual conflict that's larger than your life, descending upon your life. It's a conflict between spiritual forces that are not entirely of this world. So this section of Isaiah, as we look at it, uh, deals with the fact God has not cast off his people. And we are going to transition, just slightly dip our toes into the basis of how these sinful people are not being cast off. And that has to do with the great suffering servant who will die for their sins. And then in chapters 53, at the end of chapter 53, the bulk of it from verses 13 on, we will be studying a call to Israel to invest their faith in this Messiah, uh, to take action. So today we're looking at the last part of God talking about how he has not cast off his people. He has a plan for them. Look at chapter 52, verse 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. 
For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there. And the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore what have I here, declares the Lord. Seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers wail, declares the Lord. And continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak, here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together, they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. Therefore the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall go out, for you shall not go out in haste, you, and you shall not go out in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told they see, and that which, that which they have not heard they understand. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word today, I ask that you'd give us understanding of this challenge to Israel, that they will be in captivity, that they will be comfortable in captivity, that they need to get up and do the uncomfortable thing of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. That not only they will be in Jerusalem, but their Messiah, your great servant, will also serve you there. He will be marred, and yet he will sprinkle many nations. God, as these people obeyed you and died lives, uh, died out of their lives, some in mundane ways, some in uh, uncommon ways. Uh, Father, each one is in your presence and each one has done their part. And each one waits for the fulfillment of this text, knowing that they have their reward. I pray, God, that you would help us to search the landscape of our lives, the opportunity, your word. I pray, Father, that we would serve you, that we would play our part to your glory Instruct us and direct us in Jesus' name. We ask, Amen. Uh, as we, um, if you turn me up just a little, or is that on? Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. I'm going to take that down. All right. Thank you. Um, as we begin here in our study, uh, him rejoices in the restoration and the honor of Jerusalem in, in verses one through six. Verses one through six. Awake! Awake! Put on your strength. Now, when, when he's saying awake, awake here in verse number one, he's saying awake and leave Babylon, okay? Uh, you need to get up from your comfort and you need to leave. So awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. 
For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So when he says, shake yourself from the dust and arise, it's time to get up. When he says, be seated, that's not a conflict. That's the idea of be seated in your royal throne. Be seated in Jerusalem. I believe that's what he's saying. And he's saying, loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So these first two verses are the hymn. And then we get into some prose, some regular language here in verse 3. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord your God, uh, the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have we here in Babylon? <laughs> declares the Lord. Seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers wail, declares the Lord. And continually all the day, my name is despised. Make no mistake about it that, uh, that these issues uh, affect the glory of God. Verse 6, therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak, here I am. So uh, he's, he's calling him in the first two verses to get up and to get moving and to be seated in Jerusalem. That is going to be no easy task. Uh, that, that is going to be a challenge for Israel. And then in verse 3, is this an insult? You were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money? I don't think that's an is insult. I think that's a fact. Uh, that, that, that God has no obligation to Babylon. Uh, that there is no transaction in which, in which God sold them as bondservants into Babylon. God used Babylon. God judged Israel and used Babylon to judge his people. There are no obligations. There's no covenants with Babylon. There's no commitments on God's part. When he is done using Babylon to punish them, they can leave. The, the, the account is clear. And he cites past uh, oppression as well. Uh, if you look down at verse uh, number four, he, he talks about uh, they went down first into Egypt to sojourn there. And Assyria pressed them for nothing. Uh, the reference to Egypt uh, is that Israel there too was not sold into slavery. Uh, they were not sold into slavery in Egypt. In fact, they went as guests of honor. They were the children, the, the family of Joseph, the second in command. They were honored guests in Egypt. Now, slavery came about. But there was no commitment. There was no selling on God's part to Egypt. There, there was no obligation to leave them there. And then he references the Assyrians uh, uh, attacking them as well. And the reference there is a little less clear. It could be uh, Tilgath-Pileser III in 2 Kings 15 and 16. It could be Shalmaneser in 2 Kings 17. Sargon, uh, Sennacherib. It's hard to say who he's referencing there. Of course, Sennacherib is, is in Isaiah's time. And, and Sennacherib lost 185,000 men in a single night when the angel of the Lord destroyed them. So they got nothing out of that. So um, we're approaching verse 5 in Israel today. And if you look at verse 5, and we, we just consider the hatred, verse 5 says, Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord. And continually all the, name, all the day my name is despised. I think that we are approaching uh, something like that today in Israel. Uh, there is hatred across the world. Uh, you even have LGBTQ people taking a stand for Hamas publicly, which just makes no sense if they would understand what Hamas would do to them. One side of this conflict purposefully kills innocent men, women, 
and children. Their supporters are gleeful as they, as they show up to celebrate the death of innocent people. They are showing pictures on their cell phones, replaying videos with glee in their face over the murder of innocent people. The other side, Israel, gives up great strategic advantage by sending leaflets and flyers saying, we're going to bomb this area, so let's get the innocents out of here. Now, that gives your enemies time to get their equipment out of there, to get their people out of there. You're giving up a great deal of strategic advantage by showing your cards. Yet they do that to preserve life. And yes, there is collateral damage, and innocent men, women, and children are dying in Gaza today. There is no glee. There is sorrow. There is st- One culture is clearly superior to another. And yet the world equivocates between the two. In fact, the world forgets the one. And we have hundreds of thousands in the United States of America showing up in protest, in protest to Israel. Do these things make sense on the face of it? Is there not a spiritual battle? And I think this is just part of Satan's strategy. Draw Israel into a conflict, into a war that can only have grave collateral damage collectively forget the purposeful, targeted rape, torture, and mutilation of innocent people and decry the more recent casualties, the collateral damage by the other, by Israel. Even as Egypt closes its border, refuses to help the Palestinians, even as the Palestinians are having their ID cards and their keys taken away from them as they try to flee their own area, Israel will be hated. That is the agenda. Verse 6, we have here, the glory of God, therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak, here I am. There is coming a day of deliverance. And that's where we get into this this word picture of the the good feet that bring good news. And and as we read this section, I want you to think of the topography of Israel and and the nature of sharing news and antiquities. Uh, Jerusalem is up on a temple, up on a mount, it's up on the, at the top of the mountains. And there are several ridge routes coming up the Shvela, up the foothills to Jerusalem. Or if you're, if you're coming from um, Jezreel Valley from, from Samaria, uh, down the ridge route, you can, see the, you can see the people who are running toward you with good news. And perhaps if it's really good news, they're carrying a signal. You know it long in advance. Uh, additionally, at, in, on this, on, at this capital in Jerusalem, you have watchmen who are in their towers, and they're watching the ridge routes. They're watching the Shvelah. They're, they're, they're looking at the ascent of Adamim for runners and for even, lo and behold, their Lord and Savior coming. And so that's the word picture. You've got this excitement as runners are coming to Jerusalem with good news. Look at verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of the nation. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Good news. Uh, There's a runner who is bringing good news. And we see uh, four descriptions. It's good tidings. It's good news. It's peace, which is not just the absence of conflict. It's the presence of prosperity, uh, of well-being. 
We see, again, good news of happiness. That's good news of merriness, of pleasantness, uh, desirable. And we see salvation. We see help and deliverance. How does this happen? Verse 7, your God reigns. Verse 8, the watchman declares the Lord's return to Zion. Verse 9, the Lord comforts his people. Break forth together into singing you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. This city will rise again with God there and present reigning. Verse number 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. I believe that is a military deliverance when it says God has bared his arm. Uh, I, I believe that that is a flex, that that is a revealing of power on behalf of Israel. Which is kind of interesting today because today Israel is quite the military powerhouse. Uh, that, 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 that probably indicates to us that by the time Jesus Christ comes to deliver them militarily, they are going to be greatly weakened. Uh, so if we are thinking anything today, the, the, we're probably not quite at the end yet because Jerusalem and Israel are not quite at the end of themselves. Um, I, I can't help but think of God bearing his holy arm. Um, if you think about people who fight with swords, um, I'm a tennis player. I'm, I'll get to the tennis illustration in a minute. But if you think about people who fight with swords, swords are heavy. Uh, Anywhere from a pound to three and a half pounds. Uh, a pound, uh, yeah, two and a half to three and a half would be medieval swords. So, and you, and you read about the, that one mighty man of David, 2 Samuel 23, Eleazar. He struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to his sword. Okay, um, uh, these men had arms. Uh, at least the right arm was something. And, and in fact, this is, this is just a picture of a tennis player. Tennis rackets are 10 ounces around, okay, 10 ounces, much lighter than a sword. Okay, but just look at one arm versus the other arm. It's like one arm is mighty, right? The other arm looks like, boy, this could be, a, you know, a guy who works on his computer all day, right? And it's not. It's an athlete. He's well-trained. But that other arm is well exercised by, by a sword that carried, uh, by, a, by, by a 10-ounce racket that hits a 2-ounce ball, Versus soldiers who have a two to three pound sword crashing into skulls and bones and flesh. And, uh, and, and so there would be a sense in which when a, uh, if you take King David who fought many wars or Jonathan, if one of those men, if it came down to time to battle and they took off their outer robe and you could see their arms uh, and, and, and you would see an average person next to them, you'd look at the army and you'd say this battle's over before it's even begun. I mean, it would just be so, so obvious. And so, this is our God. He is going to bear his arm. Isaiah 51, we saw before, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. When, when God shows his strength, and it's interesting because in the first coming of our Lord and Savior, they wanted a military Messiah. They wanted someone to overthrow Rome. And, 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 and Jesus Christ preached overthrowing sin. He preached repentance and the need to get right with God. But his second coming, it's going to be a military deliverance. He is going to show his arm of strength and the nations are going to be undone. This battle is going to be over before it even begins when God starts moving. God will grant Israel the opportunity here 
as this unfolds. And, and again, prophecies like mountain ranges, this isn't all going to happen in, in, in the 6th century or the 5th century B.C. A piece of it's going to happen in the 6th century and the 5th century B.C. The return of Israel to their land, the return of Judah to their land. But uh, God will grant Israel the opportunity to depart from, for Jerusalem in safety. Look at verse 11 and 12. Depart, depart, go out from there. Okay, now it's interesting, that, that far demonstrative there. Um, uh, you know, that, uh, the, the, the prophet, as he writes, he's not there, okay? If he, was, if he was there, he'd be saying, depart from here. But this is Isaiah writing a century before, saying, hey, when you're there, Jerusalem, you need to depart from there. You need to get up and depart. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of here. Purify yourselves. Now, as you leave Babylon, leave all of the pagan worship. Leave all of the idolatry behind. And you know what is interesting? As Doug Bookman has pointed out when he's here, Israel played around with polytheism and idolatry throughout their history. I mean, the, the Ashtara offering children to, to false idols, to false gods. Israel had all this problem with polytheism until Babylon. And if you look at the secular history recording and, and the spiritual history of Israel, from this point forward in history, it seems like it cured them of polytheism. They are fiercely monotheistic, even struggling with the deity of their Messiah as a result. And, um, and, and so he, he says, hey, get up from there, do not touch any unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out in haste, in other words, you're not going to be chased by armies. And you shall not go out in flight. You're not going to be running. Why? For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. And if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you will see that they were well provided for. That it was a hard work, but they were able to go in dignity, that there was not some battle that, that threatened them along the way. Now, verses 13 through 15 uh, many would argue that the, the monk who divided up the chapters and the verses of the Old Testament made a mistake here. That verse 13 should go with 53. That's the majority, with, with, with chapter 53. That's the majority view. There are a minority of scholars who believe that these verses are the culmination of chapters 51 and 52. The culmination of the call to Israel to go back to Jerusalem because their suffering servant Messiah is going to go back to Jerusalem as well. And, uh, and either way, I'm happy to move slowly through this section in chapter 53. So let's just take three verses here in verses uh, 13 through 15. And uh, let me just see our point that we're taking from that here. Point number four uh, is Isaiah proclaims the exaltation of God's servant who is marred beyond human semblance and who sprinkled the nations. Verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, and God could be talking to Jerusalem here when Jerusalem was taken into exile. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind so he shall sprinkle. Now you see verse 14 begins with as, verse 15 begins with so. So verse 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred, so he shall sprinkle. Through his being marred, so he shall sprinkle many nations. 
Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Now, chapter 50, uh, 52, verse 13, begins with this phrase, Behold my servant. It's like chapter 42 begins, Behold my servant. In chapter 42, the servant of God has God's spirit on him. He brings justice to the nations in chapter 42. He does not cry aloud. He does not break a bruised reed. He does not even snuff out a smoldering, about-to-die wick in a lamp as he goes by it. He is so gentle, yet... In chapter 42, he brings forth justice. Behold my servant. We had that in chapter 42. Today we have it in chapter 53. Behold my servant. What about my servant? He shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. I am told that this wisdom is connected to why he is high and lifted up. Because he acts wisely, he will be high and lifted up. Now what is this wisdom with which he acts? He acts with the wisdom that allows himself to be sacrificed in God's plan. His life in this life did not end well. It ended with crucifixion. And so Isaiah says in, chapter, uh, in verse 14, um, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. If you see crucifixes, it, it looks like uh, some kind of a, uh, a fitness model climbed up on that cross or something. That is not what crucifixion looked like for Jesus Christ. What was hanging on that cross was not recognizable as a human form. It was so beaten. He was so beaten for us. Beyond human semblance. His form beyond that of the children of mankind. His life did not end well. The life of Jesus Christ did not go well. It did not end well. But he behaved himself with wisdom so that he will be exalted. This is all part of God's plan. In verse 15, it says, So shall he sprinkle many nations. I take the sprinkling to be a priestly, uh, a priestly act of cleansing, some kind of a priestly act of cleansing. And by him living his life according to God's plan, allowing his life to end without without you know, uh, in suffering according to God's plan, in so doing, he, 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 he put forward God's plan for the nations. He's, he died for the sins of the world. So shall he sprinkle many nations. And then it ends with kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see now. This could go one of two ways for these kings. I'm not sure what it's just talking about. It could be that they see the arm of the Lord, and now they understand when it's too late, and they are finished. It could also be, it could also be that kings of many nations will have trusted Jesus Christ, and they will see the salvation. They will understand. Things that they, they had not heard, they come to understand. I hope it is that for them. As I think about kings of nations, I, I, I oftentimes wonder, what's in their heart? What, what are they thinking? Because if you're a king, wouldn't you love for people to be prospering under your rule? Wouldn't you love to lead a nation where people are successful, where their lives are clean and orderly and, and successful, and, and they just love you and they love their nation? Wouldn't you love that? And yet that doesn't seem to be how kings of the world oftentimes measure success. They measure success by their bank accounts, by their pleasure, by their power, and whatever squalor 
is outside of their castle, whatever squalor is outside of their palace, whatever human flesh is being ground up in the wheels of productivity, so many do not seem to care. When they see this king, they will shut their mouths because of him. That which has not been seen uh, has been told them they see. That which they have not heard, they understand. We weren't made to be ruled by a democracy of consenting sinners. We live in a democracy, a democratic republic. We were not made to live in a democracy of consenting sinners. We were made to be ruled by a king. And not some selfish king who lines his pocket and measures his success by his comforts in his palace and the fear of his name going out among other kings. But a king who loves us. A king who conducts himself with perfect righteousness, perfect nobility, perfect honor. A king who has never sinned and will never sin. A king who loved you so much that he would die for you. He would give his life for you. That's King Jesus. Noble, loving, worthy. And we look forward to being ruled by this king forever. Jesus, the Messiah, as we conclude this section, as, as Israel is being told, you need to get up from Babylon, you need to get up from your comfort, and you need to go back and you need to rebuild walls. God's going to go before you. You're not going to be chased. He's going to be your rear guard. You're going to be safe. It's not going to be easy, but you're going to be safe. And you need to do this because this is laying into my plan. In fact, your King Jesus is going to come back to this city wall that you are building, and he is going to live and minister and be rejected and die and sprinkle many nations here. Uh, these people obeyed God. History is headed toward a destination that involves God's glory. Judah's exile, the return to the hard work of building was part of that. It played into the plan of God's glory. Today, you and I live lives of peace in the United States of America. I'm thankful. Friday, I didn't know what to expect. It was supposed to be a global day of jihad, and stabbings were supposed to be taking place worldwide. I don't know of any that happened, not only in our nation, but in our hemisphere. I don't know of a single stabbing. Maybe there was, and I just missed it. But I'm thankful. We don't know what tomorrow will bring, but we have peace. How will you use that peace? Will we seek God? Will we share Christ here? Will we share Christ all over the world? Will we bless our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, those who are in need? Will we look outside of ourselves and play into God's plan by showing the love of God to people who are suffering today? In Isaiah's day, Israel needed an encouraging word about the future of Jerusalem. God would allow them to return in relative peace, related to their work and the foundation of their forgiveness. The Messiah himself would suffer and sprinkle many nations there. But they needed the encouraging word to remove themselves from a position of comfort, to move themselves from inaction, and to take action that would yield eternal fruit. Those people did that. They returned. They did the hard work. They died in Jerusalem. Most of them, I'm sure, they died mundane deaths of old age or disease or illness. Some died extraordinary deaths under various circumstances. But like people have done for centuries, they lived, they died. 
But they are in the presence of God today. And they've done their part. (laughs) They rebuilt the walls into which Jesus Christ came and ministered and died. As they wait in God's presence, they know they did their part. They know they finished their course well. They know they prepared the city in which Jesus came to minister. What will be your part in this story? Uh, We know it's not over in Israel, right? (laughs) There's a lot of history to be lived out in this conflict, in future conflicts perhaps. What will be your part? What will be your contribution? Will it be in the gospel? Will it be in ministry? Will it be in service? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that everything is headed somewhere. <laughs> that, God, the, uh, the chaos is purposeful. It's purposeful on the side of darkness. It's purposeful on your side as well. God, we know that there are yet trials to come. Your word tells us this. And we know, Father, that the day is going to come where you are going to bear your arm and you are going to end this gloriously. And your, your name will be magnified. Uh, Father, we thank you for the peace we enjoy here in the United States. I pray that we would not waste it. I pray that we'd be serious about knowing you, worshiping you. I pray that we'd be serious about purification from sin. I pray, God, that we would share your word with others here, that we would risk our reputation with our friends, with our coworkers, by sharing a word of truth. And globally, Father, I pray that we would go with the gospel. I pray that we would support those who do go with the gospel. And Father, in a day where we can moneygram funds and resources across the world in five minutes, I pray that we would not sit around wishing there was something we could do, but I pray that we'd be busy about finding opportunities to serve your people all over the world. God, we repeat our prayers for the church in Jerusalem. We pray that you'd provide all of their needs, that they would let us know their needs as they come up, and that you'd give us a tender heart. We pray, Lord, for believers suffering all over the world. There are forces of darkness that take many forms, have many agendas. We pray that you would be with them. God, we pray that you would be with us in our culture as it seeks to equivocate between light and darkness, truth and lie, holiness and evil. I pray, Father, that you would guide us in wisdom. I pray, God, that you would help us to live lives that are righteous in the midst of an evil and perverse generation. Give us purity. Give us sanctification. Give us success over sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.